This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. You will, re- you know the the own the podium program. I think if you're a, a fan of Canadian sports, and even if you're not really a fan of Canadian sports, everybody watches the Olympics. Even if you hate sports, chances are when the Olympics come on, you turn it on, and you, like the rest of us, suddenly become a world expert in skeleton and luge. We've never watched skeleton or luge ever in our life. Modern pentathlon, biathlon, we don't even know what these things are. Honestly, any time except during the Olympics, if you said, what are the events in the modern pentathlon? People might think that had something to do with like a satanic pentagram or something like we have no idea. And yet the Olympics come along and we're all fully engaged. So we know about own the podium because after we hosted the Olympics in Montreal in 76 and then Calgary in 88, and we bombed miserably. We were the only country, only host country in the history of the Olympics to not win a gold medal in our own country, which was humiliating. I mean, it was so bad that when CBC would do their sign-off on TV, we would show the highlight of our Olympics, which was a silver medalist on the last day of the Montreal Olympics, Greg Joy jumping over the high jump bar. That was our high point. So we put all this money. We decided we're going to get this on the podium thing going five years before 2010 in Vancouver. We're going to win medals, darn it. We're going to put $200 million a year towards our best hopes not everybody, towards our best hopes, and we are going to make sure that we win some medals. And it has worked. Look at who just won the Male and Female Athlete of the Year in this country. Peggy Alec- Penny Alexiak, a female Olympian. Andre DeGrasse, a male Olympian. Anne Merklinger, who is with On the Podium, she is the third chief executive officer, uh, says this, the government of Canada's decision to deploy a targeted excellence approach has delivered in spades. The data speaks for itself. It's been incredibly successful. But, but, and I add this but, there are critics. And the critics are seemingly, and we bring Rick Zamperin, assistant brand manager. Yeah, he's everything here. You know what, you know who he is. And he's filling in for Scott Thompson later on. He's here early already. Uh, Rick, to me, this seems like about the most Canadian thing that could possibly be. We find a program that is wildly successful by all Mm -hmm. accounts. We are now an Olympic winter sports powerhouse and we're doing pretty well in the summer Olympics when no one expects us really honestly to do Mm -hmm. much of anything. And the critics are out saying two things. One, we're spending too much money. That's an argument we can probably legitimately have. How Mm -hmm. much is too much? But the second part is why are we spending our money on the good athletes on the ones who are going to win medals, we should share it with everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets a participation prize. Yes. What do you say to this? That is, yes, that is, uh, quote unquote, the Canadian way. I understand the need or the want to, uh, you know, reanalyze uh, the whole Own the Podium program and how it's, uh, how it has worked because it has worked fantastically. I mean, Canada set a all-time Winter Olympics record with 14 gold medals and in 2010, we won 10 in Sochi, which was right up there with the most, uh, in the top 10 in the Summer Olympics as well in Brazil this past summer, which we've never been uh, close to the top 10. Uh, so we know that the program has worked, but the analysis, I think, should be you know warranted to say, you know, can we be a little bit better? Um, whether or not, you know, spraying the money around to other athletes is going to mean more medalists remains to be seen because they still have to go out there and perform. Uh, I understand why they want to do that. The fact of the matter is that when you target those monies to those athletes who you think 
and perhaps know based on past performance or potential that they are going to meddle, why mess with that? So maybe it needs a little bit more money, which is a whole other conversation, and you spread that new money to those athletes who wouldn't necessarily get as much as you know those premium stars. Well, right now we're paying roughly, give or take, $200 million right. a year. And now again, if you're someone who is not into sports, you're going, $200 million yeah. a year, what are we doing? Yeah. But compare that to other nations. Sure. It's a drop in the bucket. Absolutely it yeah. is. And that $200 million, by and large, as you said, goes to, most of it goes to the elite of the right. elite who are leading in their World Cup standings points or mm-hmm. one of the best in the world. Is that not, if we're going to spend all this money, is that not ultimately what we're spending it for to sure. win? Yeah. I mean, the program's called Own the Podium. We don't want to... Participate in the program. Yeah. We don't want to have, you know, uh, uh, you know, one medal winner and 34th and 5th place finishers, which we saw for decades, really, at the Olympic Games. Uh, and, and really, the Own the Podium program and the targeted money has transferred that one medalist to... 10 or 14 or 20 medalists in Olympia, uh, Olympic Games. And, have, you know, we're still seeing those fourth and fifth place finishers, but we're seeing a lot more people on the podium. And that's really the genesis of the initiative is to get more medals around Canadians uh, next. The, 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 the flip of this is if we change it and say, listen, everybody's going to get the same amount of money, yeah. what we are, I think what we're probably going to end up with is as Canadians, we are going to have to accept fewer medals mm-hmm. and be happier just with those images of the Canadian who came 27th right. walking into the closing ceremonies going, woo I was here. Sure, but we're seeing that anyway. And that's lovely, yeah. I suppose. And if that's your friend or your brother mm-hmm. or your child, that's wonderful. But Rick, I don't know that as Canadians that we are as Canadian as we think we are. We we do have a we ruthless we have a ruthless enough streak to us that when we go to the Olympics, we right. don't want to be embarrassed. We yeah. want to win. We want to hear O Canada. Well, here's here's a scenario. You don't spend as much money as you have in the past, or you spread it around to all the athletes. So every athlete in the Canadian Olympic uh, um, Committee, uh, who's representing our country in a, in a specific games, gets the same amount. Uh, so, you know, that goes to training and sponsorships and, you know, going to events and travel and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we go from, you know, those 10 medalists or those 10 gold medals that we saw in Sochi to, you know, two, but we get a bevy of, you know, top 10 finishers, which is great. You know, being the top 10 in the world is fantastic. But let's say our Canadian hockey team was not, you know, the NHLers, and there's still that debate out there. And we send a bunch of the amateur guys or guys who are not in the NHL, and we say, you know what, you don't need the money because you're already taken care of, and they finish fifth. You know, what a natural or national disaster it would be for, you know, Canada's hockey team in the Olympic Games to not medal. So that's really what we're talking about is not directing those dollars to those premium athletes who we think are going to hit the podium. If we're spending $200 million... What is what are we getting for that? What's the what's the payoff for the money that I yeah. mean? What are we buying for the general Canadian mm-hmm. population? Not for the guy, not for the Rick Zamperin who goes out there and wins a gold medal. Yeah. We know then that you're going to have sponsorships and all the rest. Sure. For Canada, yeah. what are you buying for two hundred million dollars? Well, I think number one for the individual, it is great because you know they get that medal, they get that lifetime achievement award, basically, in, in you know hitting uh, hitting the podium. That's really their their ultimate dream. They get the sponsorships. Uh, they might get. Uh, you know, additional uh, sponsorships down the road in terms of, you know, commercials or whatever. For the nation, though, basically, at the end of the day, we're we're buying pride. We're buying uh, celebrations. We're buying some 
you know, really some heritage. You look over, you know, the last number of Olympics, and we have really put our stamp on the Winter Games for sure in terms of hockey and, you know, uh, moguls, bobsled, you know, all these, you know, heavy-hitting sports. Uh, figure skating's another one. Uh, we're buying some heritage there. We're buying some pride. We're buying some standing on the international stage to say, you know, we shouldn't be messed with. We are a contender each and every sport. And is that worth $200 million? Well, I think that's the great debate. Some say $200 million is not enough. Others will say that's way too much. You know, why are we spending all this money on athletes who are just participating in a sport, really, at the end of the day, for fun, even though there is a lot of money behind it in terms of, you know, sponsors and, and, and organizers, uh, you know, collecting dollars. But uh, I think that... During the Olympic year, there is a lot of attention, obviously, on the Olympics. It's one of the biggest sports, one of the biggest events on the planet. And we want our athletes to do well. When, you know, a particular athlete finishes sixth and they were, you know, point zero zero one one hundredth or whatever time off the speed skating, uh, you know, uh, podium, uh, we get kind of upset. So and then, we, you know, there's calls for, you know, increased funding and the like. So uh, the debate's never going to go away because we could always spend a little bit more or, or retract some of those dollars. But at the end of the day, I think we buy some national pride. Here's my here's my answer to that always. And that's I, I, an interesting answer that you gave because I share it in a lot of ways. In your mind, and anyone who's listening, just think about this answer in your own head. Hmm. Tell me a moment it doesn't have to be, it could be any from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Tell me a moment when Canadians felt like a community. The well, last they're, time they're, that you really felt like everybody was thinking or yeah. celebrating the same thing. I think for me, and, and there's a lot of them, but for me, probably the most recent one would be the Golden Goal, Sidney Crosby in Vancouver. We're hosting the games, you know, millions of people are watching or, you know, attending in the arena. Uh, and that really galvanized the nation. It was on the final day of the Olympics, and that really was, you know, the 14th record breaking gold medal. So that was probably. That moment for me. Okay. And prior to that, you would have, not in any particular order, you would have Gretzky to Lemieux would be sure. a moment like that yeah. at Cops Coliseum. Uh, you'd have Paul Henderson. Yeah. You'd have Ben Johnson yeah. momentarily. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Donovan <laughs> Bailey winning the gold medal yeah. and then the four by 100. You would have Joe Carter hitting the home run. Yeah. You would have Joe Carter catching the ball in Atlanta when they won <laughs> yeah. the World Series. Yeah. Yeah. You might include in there Jose Bautista's home run. Sure. Against Texas or, and and what's the common denominator? Sports is the one thing that whether you love it or hate it, it's the one thing that creates this sense of Mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. And there are other things I know, but they're the ones you can fall back to. And so 200 million bucks is a lot of money, but it, to the critics, it does buy something. It does give us those moments where we feel Canadian. Definitely. And I think that, you know, it's, we could spend $200 million on, you know, building a bridge and, you know, the, the people in that you know, city or community bridge. Yeah, would love it as long <laughs> as it's right side up and not upside down. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, to send hun- really hundreds of athletes to an Olympic Games abroad. Uh, and, you know, when was the last time we heard of a Canadian Ryan Lochte? You know, really. Uh, who was a great athlete but just did something stupid. Like, I can't recall, apart from Ben Johnson, but that's kind of a different scenario, of doing something really dumb at Olympic Games. I mean, our athletes are well-trained, well-mannered, respect where they are and where they are on the international stage, carry the flag with pride. Um, You know, I I, I say it's money well spent. I used the word a few moments ago, ruthless. Do we have to be ruthless in this? Because it seems a lot... I mean, we just... We heard today that a Russian... Diplomat or sports figure said, yes. yeah, probably we were yeah, we probably having some it. kind of <laughs> doping thing that was part of the government run. I mean, yeah. there seems to be a level of ruthlessness mm-hmm. in international sport out there. So it, it leaves you with the option. We either 
be ruthless ourselves in a certain way, yeah. or we say we're just along for the ride. Well, I think there it's you know it's ruthless to a point. I think when you're on the sporting field or whatever playing surface uh, you're on, you want to be ruthless. You want to take no prisoners. You want to win that particular event. In terms of a Canadian Olympic Committee or Federation, you want to play by the rules. Certainly, you don't want uh, you know any of your athletes to be substance abusers. You want to play oh, of course. You know, within oh, the no. lines, obviously. But you know, once that competition is on, yeah, you want to beat the other guy or girl and 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 win the medal. That's basically you know the ultimate goal. And that's of course what I'm. T- I'm not. I believe me. I'm not arguing that we want another Dublin sure. inquiry. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, been there, done that. Don't yeah. need to go through that yeah, got again. The but no. But for the spending the money and saying we want to give our athletes yeah. a fair, drug-free, legal chance to mm-hmm. compete. Because honestly, it, to me, it's the question becomes now with the way the world of sports is, we either spend enough money to make it so that they have a chance to win, right. or let's really not spend any because yeah. we're just throwing it away we then. Yeah. We're just, if we're, if we're going to go there to finish 30th, yeah. what's the point? What's the point? It is a delicate balance. And as, you know, as I said, the debate's going to rage on, especially during Olympic year. We spend how much on, you know, sending athlete A, B, and C to, to the Olympic Games? You know, this money should be, you know, spent elsewhere. And there's so many other things that, you know, our country needs or wants or, or requires in terms of, you know, whether it's health care or education or the environment, whatever. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, $200 million is is really, you know, nothing at all compared to billions of dollars of budgets that, you know, each province and the federal government, you know, is spending money on. So, Oh, we I can said, find government projects to blow $200 oh, yeah. million oh, bucks. without a doubt. We can do it here in the every, city. <laughs> every day this <laughs> week we can come up right with now. something. Yeah. But I think for the, you know, we get a huge bang for our buck, $200 million, the return on investment in terms of national pride and, and these athletes, you know, achieving, you know, their lifetime goals. Uh, you know, $200 million, I, I'd spend that in a heartbeat. If you go back, and the, the, the example that Rick just brought up, it, it, go back to the Sidney Crosby goal in 2010. Hmm. There are, and I should find it to put it up online, there is a video that someone put together of the celebrations across the country. Hmm. Just a, a, a series of yeah. people in their living rooms, in public parks, in the arenas, wherever else, community centers, when he scored. And from Vancouver to St. John's, yeah. that moment... That moment, the entire country was focused on one thing. Now, I know those are NHL players. It's a little bit different. But the point is, it was sports, and it was something that we all felt terrific for that time about. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, it was hockey. You know, that's our game. We are supposed to win. Um, And, and, you know, being against the United States in that final, there was a a good rivalry that had been built through the World Juniors. And, of course, with, you know, the NHL guys and a lot more Americans playing the sport, uh, you know, that was our time to say, hey, you know, this is our game. We got to win this. But even Bilodeau, I mean, winning the Moguls, we don't exactly have, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, oh, man, I got to see if the Moguls are on. Right. But that moment was fantastic. John Montgomery in Skeleton in yes. Vancouver. Drinking these the are, beer. These are moments that we don't care about these sports by and large. Yeah. But in that particular setting, yeah. they mattered. Oh, they no mattered. doubt about it. No doubt about it. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Texting and driving is a problem. It's something you shouldn't do. I mean, leaving aside the penalties you would get for it, which are pretty stiff. I think it's 490 bucks now for a uh, if you're caught distracted driving. But we, we get the fact that when you have your head down and you're typing away on your smartphone, that that's dangerous. I don't think there's anybody who's struggling with that concept anymore. Maybe a few, but I don't think many. But there's one wrinkle in this whole distracted driving thing that is still obviously causing 
a bit of a problem, still causing some confusion, or at least we're having a much harder time wrapping our fingers around. And you just heard Shauna talk about it. Shauna talked about it in the news. It is against the law, not only to text while you are driving, but to text or to check your phone when you are stopped at a red light or a stop sign. And yet 33% of Canadians say they've done it within the past month, according to a new poll that the CAA just did. And let's be honest, if 33% of Canadians are willing to admit it, that means a whole lot more actually did. Some people probably thought the CAA was the police checking up on them and didn't want to actually admit to it. I would be willing to bet almost all the money I have that more than 33% of Canadians have actually done this. That said, 70% of Canadians in the same poll said it was unacceptable. Well, the numbers kind of match up. If you've got this 33% who are saying they did it, that means 70% roughly would say no, no, no. But listen, you're listening right now. If you're in your car, come on, you've done it, right? Admit to yourself because we've all done it. I, I, I don't want to admit that I've done it. I may or may not have, but I may have. <laughs> Question is, why is this a problem and why is this, be, why is this so difficult to resolve? Well, Scott Marshall is a safe driving expert. He's a former judge on Canada's worst driver, appropriately, and he has hosted the National Driving Test. He joins us now. Scott, thanks for doing this this morning. My pleasure. What, let's start with, before we get into the legalities of all this, because we know it's illegal, why is texting at a red light a problem? Why is it dangerous? Why, why shouldn't we do it? You take your mind off of the, the whole driving environment just because you're, you're sitting at a red light. And I think we've all seen it where um, drivers in the left turning lane have an advanced arrow and someone next to them going straight sees motion and they go through that red light and completely through the intersection even though they had a red light and there was advanced green. And you're, you're, you're taking away your thought process as a driver when your mind is elsewhere. Okay, because the, the argument would be certainly that, listen, if I'm fully stopped and I'm waiting at a red light and I know I can't go through, I'm not driving and therefore I'm no danger to anybody. Well, you, you are driving. You're just not in motion. Your car's still in drive. Your foot's still on the brake. You're still in control of your motor vehicle. And you still have to be that professional driver. Professional driver isn't just someone who, who gets paid to drive. It's someone with that proper mentality uh, and being aware of what's going on around them. So why then, Scott, are we... And listen, we all know that this is... I think most people know. I don't think many people are confused by this. I'm sure there are some. But most people know this is illegal. This is part of the whole distracted driving. So why are we having such a hard time with this concept? Because I bet if you did the same poll, 33% of Canadians wouldn't say they have texted while driving. It's while they've been stopped. So why are we having a hard time with this? They don't want to miss out on things. <laughs> they, want, they want to see what's going on with their, their social media, or they've been texting their friend, their family member, and they just can't leave it for those few minutes while they're still driving. They need to get over it, really. That, you know, you're, you're not wrong. And somehow this, this probably could be a whole other topic just on social media addiction or whatever we want to call it on that. And, I, you know, I know that, it's, uh, that that's a huge problem. But, but again, I mean, it, let me go back for a second because I think the answer for most people, while you're absolutely right, they don't want to miss anything, the feeling is if I'm stopped, it doesn't feel like I'm doing anything wrong. 
It, I mean, and so as a result, we can sort of convince ourselves that, okay, I can just check really quickly. You're right. I got to check it. I got I don't want to miss anything, but it doesn't feel wrong to be doing this when I'm not moving. No. And I think you're right with that too, because they, they have that mentality. I'm, I'm not hurting anyone, but they're not hurting one yet. And there's that possibility. And that's, that's where it starts that if I could just check it quickly at a red light, then if I'm going slowly in bumper-to-bumper traffic in rush hour, maybe I can do another quick check then. And the next thing you know, they're doing it when there's no traffic around them and they're doing 50K. It just keeps ballooning from one step right to the next. And they have to nip it in the bud and say, I'm not going to do this. this. This is done. Not to beat a dead horse on this, but we have seen, I, I know you've seen them. I'm sure most of the people listening have seen them. There are some very effective but terrifying TV commercials out there about texting and driving. And, and as I say, really effective when you realize. And I think that's helped to clarify this situation for a lot of people about texting and driving. It's really hard, though, to make a terrifying commercial about being stopped and texting. No, and, and you know what? A lot of people uh, belong to a club, and the club is called the It Won't Happen to Me Club. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And, you know, crashes happen to other people. Um, I won't do it. I won't do it when I see an officer. All of these things, but it just, it just leads to one. I was stopped a few weeks back at a red light, and I looked to my left, and there was a motorist in the left turning lane with a cell phone up to their ear. And as I glanced over to them, they, they kind of looked towards me. I guess they, they sensed someone was watching. And I shook my head no. And they slowly dropped their phone down. And they knew what they were doing was wrong, but they did it anyway. So even the, the 33% who say they've done it, like you said at the start, people know this is wrong. They may not know why. Even the fact that it's a law, it's like, yeah, but there's nobody here. I'm not hurting anyone. Doesn't mean it's right. And as I say, and, and also if you've got kids in your car and you're an adult, you're a parent, and you're doing that, what message does that send to your kid that it's okay for you to do it, therefore it must be okay for them to do it? It's the wrong message. The tricky part about this, a spokesman for the CAA in relation to this poll that came out said we need to have an attitude about red light texting that are similar to those about drunk driving. And again, we all understand nobody anymore, I don't think, accepts or says, oh, drunk driving isn't that bad. I mean, come on, I, you know, I can get away with it a little. It's socially unacceptable and it's personally for most people unacceptable. But I got to, you know, maybe I'm just being pessimistic, Scott, but I, I look at this and I think, I think it's going to be very difficult to get through to people about the red light texting thing being equal to drunk driving. Texting and driving, yes, but I just think it's going to be a very difficult fight to make that this is just as dangerous as drunk driving. You know, but all these years that we spent learning about the, the, the dangers of drinking and driving, it still happens. And I remember learning about that when I was in school 800 years ago. And texting is still fairly new when you, when you come to it. I've had a cell phone for more than 20 years, but texting, I think, is like 10 or 12 years. And people still aren't into that mentality because a lot of people were brought up with a cell phone. Yes. It's always been part of their life. Attached to them for, yeah, you're right. It's been attached to them for years. That's right. So if I can walk and text, sit and text, stand and text, well, I'm sitting in the car. Why can't I text? I text all the time. Let me play, sorry, let me play devil's advocate for a second though, because one of the things you mentioned a moment ago, uh, and you know, I, I understand that what the law says, 
But there would be people who would argue, and, and believe me, I've been one of them at times that says, if I hold, you were talking about the person who had the cell phone up to their ear in the turn lane. Yep. If I have my cell phone up to my ear, the argument would be, I'm no more distracted by that, talking on a cell phone, than I am talking to the person in the passenger seat next to me, or eating a hamburger in my seat, or fiddling with my car radio. And so well, why would one be illegal and the other's not? Well, I'll, I'll tell you this one. The difference is between talking to somebody on the phone and talking to your passenger. If you're driving, you're stopped, and you're having a conversation. Let's say you and I were in the car talking about the, the World Juniors, and something happened ahead of us. You and I would both stop talking because it got our attention, whether it be a, a collision or black ice or, or whatever the case is. But if you're on the phone talking to somebody in their residence, they don't see what you see, and they're still going to distract you. That mental distraction is still taking your thoughts away from driving safely. Good point. Okay, yeah, no, I hadn't thought of that. Good point. Going through a red light. Let me throw another one, though, another devil's advocate position at you, and that is I was looking this up just before we came on about what the actual rules are around the distracted driving. If I have my cell phone on a in a holder attached to my dashboard, so it's not in my hand, but it's it's locked into place somewhere. There's nothing that says I could not be pressing buttons on it technically that way. And that seems to be a fine line between being able to be paying close attention to the road and not paying any attention to the road. Oh, I agree with you. And, and I think that that's another topic in itself because of all what we have in our vehicles to um, um, check out the, the radio stations and the temperature and, and all sorts of different things that we have electronically in our vehicles. Um, we had distraction, distracted driving in the 70s, but it was an AM radio. <laughs> yeah, and an 8-track, that's right. <laughs> an 8-track, and, and there was no cup holder, so you had your, your can of pop sitting beside you on the bench seat. And so we've had them, but the, the, the one true distraction that we've had throughout centuries has been the human factor, that we're curious about things. And if I hear a buzz on my phone, I must have I've got a message. And it must be important. And it must be important, exactly, because why would someone send me something that's not important? So there's another solution to that. Which is? There are a bunch of apps, and they're free, that you can get onto your phone. I have one on mine. That uh, Mine is, is motion-sensitive. At the moment I'm, I'm in motion, either on a bicycle, in a boat, or in a, in a vehicle, it stops the notifications from coming to me. I don't hear a buzz. I don't hear anything. Um, I don't feel a vibration. And... Um, it sends a message automatically to the person who texts me that says I'm driving and I'll respond later. So anybody who sends me a text will automatically get that. So if one of my kids says, oh, I wonder if dad's on, on the way home, dad, are you on your way home? They get this message. They know automatically I'm driving. Do you know what it's called? Um, it's called one tap. One tap. One, is it like one word, one tap? No, two words, one tap. Okay. All right. One tap. And, and it's free. All right, I'm going to be downloading it during the commercial break. I mean, no, that's, I mean, it's a brilliant idea. It's a great idea because, again, part of that, what you're talking about, it's one thing to, that I have to go on to Facebook at a red light and check what's going on in social media, which, is, which says something probably more about me or the person who's doing that than really the importance of my life. But you're right. You do have texts that come in sometimes saying, hey, can you pick up a loaf of bread on the way home? Can you, how long are you going to be? Whatever else. And if there's something that goes right to that person to say they can't get back to you, that seems to be the perfect answer to this. It is. And you don't have to worry about turning it on and turning it off. This one automatically comes on when you're in motion. And I love it, actually. 
there is um our, our cars though and you know we talk about the thing where you can put your cell phone right on the dashboard our car is not built today are they not designed to create distractions it seems like every car commercial or every car i look in now there are more buttons more electronics more things it seems like while we're telling people don't be distracted while you drive we are providing them with more distractions while they drive yeah, you're you're right, and and there are a lot of things, and and it it kind of scares me when I see the the vehicles that come equipped with Wi-Fi, and it's not just for passengers. You know, you save your data, and uh, it's it's temptation, and and we've always been tempted in centuries, and and it's time to you know. But part of it is you can turn a lot of those things off. You don't have to hook up your Bluetooth. Um, you can have your um, your music plugged in, preset. Um, depends on how long your drive is. And you don't really have to look at your, your screen. Um, and it's definitely if you're going to look at it, but you don't have to press any buttons if you plan. And it, part of this is that you really want to do well. And we have to drop the attitude that it's everybody else because you're, you could be part of the problem, not so much part of the solution. Scott, just before I let you go, you mentioned one thing, and I, I want to just go back a little bit, and you were pointing out about holding the phone to your ear and how you can be distracted because the person at the other end doesn't see what you're seeing, and so they could carry on when you're in a, a difficult situation. Does that then mean that you are not in favor of even having Bluetooth, so hands-free talking in the car? Because that would be the same thing. It is the same thing. Um, there's, there's the advantage of having two hands on the steering wheel. There's no question about it. But there's a time and a place for it. And um, I have Bluetooth in my car, and um, for almost 29 years as an instructor, I've, I've, often I don't have my radio on. And one of my friends had called, and I, I didn't answer the call. I, I ended the call. He called three times while I was driving home. And when I got home, I called him. He said, there's something wrong with your phone. And I said, no, actually, I didn't want to answer it because I was in rush hour. I was in heavy traffic, and I had to have my mind on my driving, even though I had Bluetooth. But that's my decision as the driver is keep my focus, keep my attention, because we can't multitask as much as we think we can because your mind is on a conversation. Your mind isn't on the driver or the pedestrian that's ahead of you. If it's really quiet and there's no traffic around you, you're, you're up Highway 6 and there's, there's no one near you, yeah, there's far less risk. But again, you have to decide, is this something that you want to do or maybe you need to hang up and say, you know what, the call's over. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Realistically, the most dangerous place, if you're going to take a picture, we're going to tell you about that. Maybe offer some suggestions to be smarter if you're thinking you want to go and do this. And then at the bottom of the hour... The question that everyone asks every single year, because no one really knows the answer to. I mean, they have ideas and they have guidelines and many people actually, their guidelines fall well within the acceptable limits. But when is the appropriate time? When is the proper time to take down all the Christmas decorations that you spent so much time lovingly putting up prior to the holiday? What's, what's the guideline? What is the, the chronology at what point are you leaving your Christmas decorations up too long and being that neighbor? The one that nobody really wants to be. The one who still has the Santa and the reindeer display out on the front lawn way too long. What, when, does it, when do you cross that line? When do you become that person?
Well, we'll have an etiquette expert helping us out to tell you when it's okay to leave it, when it's time to take it down. But first up this hour, there are, as you know, if you have lived in this city for any period of time, there are more than a few picturesque places in this area, Dundas, Stony Creek, Ancaster, Hamilton, wherever, to take pictures, to have family portraits done, to even to take selfies. And you probably, if again, if you've lived in this area, you know now all about our waterfall city of waterfalls thing that's become very popular. You know a bunch of these places. If you had people coming to visit and you were going to have a picturesque spot to take them for a photo, you probably have a few in mind. You can probably think of a number of them. But one place in particular, or one of the places that has become one of the favorites is absolutely one of the most gorgeous areas you'll find for a photo in this city. Trouble is, it's also become one of the most dangerous by a fair bit. If you can guess, well, I won't make you hold out and guess. There are thousands of people every year who are now going and taking pictures at Dundas Peak, right above Two's Falls. And and with good reason, it's a majestic, spectacular view of Spencer Gorge, especially in the fall time and in the summer. It's remarkable up there. The trouble is many of the people who are taking these photos now aren't just standing back and being smart. They are walking right up to the edge or even in some cases, you can go online and find these pictures, go on Instagram. I guarantee it. Go on Twitter. You'll find them. People going right up to the edge and dangling their feet over the edge of the cliff to get something truly spectacular. And the logic in our head says, wait a second, that might not be a spectacular idea because things could go horribly wrong here, but logic apparently isn't kicking in. As a result, Hamilton Fire and Rescue is being kept rather busy, as you've heard over the last number of months, pulling folks out of these areas after they've fallen in. Well, joining us to discuss this, Claudio Mostacci from the Hamilton Fire Department. Claudio, thanks for doing this today. Uh, Good morning, Scott. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Any idea of numbers? How many of these rescues, because it seems like it's happening all the time, any idea how many of these rescues Hamilton Fire has had to do in the last year or last number of months? Well, in the, la- in the last year, we've uh, we're up to uh, we had we've had 29 rope rescue calls to the various falls and, and other uh, areas where we required our rope rescue teams to uh, help individuals. It, I mean, it seems like we're hearing about these weekly. It doesn't. I mean, the numbers don't quite back that up. But boy, it's, it seems like it's happening all the time. Well, the uh, the different attractions, as you mentioned in uh, when you were talking about it, they are quite uh, majestic, as you as you indicated, and and people are getting out to nature, and certainly uh, they're getting more visitors uh, out into those areas. So uh, when people go out, uh, they'll get into situations where they need our help. But you're not surprised. You can't be surprised anymore when you hear about one of these calls. There may have been a time when you were, but you can't be now. Well, uh, certainly, uh, we're. Uh, it's not that we're we're not surprised. We we're just uh, we, meaning the city of Hamilton, is really trying to uh, educate people on what they need to do when they're going out to uh, to um, just experience the nature and get out there. And and really, uh, we want people to to look at our, our at our waterfalls because that's one of our attractions. And uh, but it, there's ways to uh, to go there and and be safe. Well, Claudio, I'm, you've been out there, right? You've been out to some of these places before yourself. Absolutely. Yep, so, I have. and you would, would you agree that if you're out there, it's pretty obvious where 
safety ends and danger begins. It's not like suddenly you're walking along and all of a sudden you're immediately in a bad spot without having any warning, is there? Well, uh, honestly, uh, the, the the things that you need to do is, uh, and, and certainly it's on it's on the uh, website too, uh, on the Parks and Recreation uh, website. It's called Waterfall Safety, and it, ta- it tells you to stick to marked trails uh, to access waterfalls. Uh, so creating your own trails, it, it's dangerous, and uh, and you have to be really uh, uh, careful. And also, it's, it could be considered uh, trespassing. Uh, you have to really respect the, the signage uh, for yourself and your family members, and even pets. Uh, that's what you really have to be aware of when you're going out there. Okay, so the the positive of this, if there is a positive, is that I, all this practice of these rope rescues probably means you guys are really good at it by now, uh, which you don't want to be, but you've had to do it a lot. Um, the negative is I'm thinking obvi- also very obvious because people can get seriously hurt with these falls into these areas. What, what what's the worst that happens? What I mean, what if when you guys when the fire rescue has had to go down there, what are you dealing with? Well, you have to understand it, it depends. At this time of the year, uh, what we're dealing with is not only uh, accessing the individuals down at the bottom, uh, but we're also dealing with weather conditions. And uh, if it's uh, cold, if there's ice, if there's snow. Uh, those all present challenges that we have to face, and and uh, and again, the firefighters out uh, are going down to uh, on ropes to access those people. The the footing is going to be uh, uh, not as um, secure. So it, it certainly it, it presents new challenges, and also for the people being rescued, they have to understand that sometimes these rope rescues can take quite a number of. Uh, of hours, it could be you could be stuck there three to four hours. So that's really one of the things that we want to stress with people. If you're going out there for a hike, be prepared uh, that if if something happens, you may be down there for two, three hours, or maybe even longer. So uh, hypothermia could set in. So make sure that you have the proper clothing. Make sure that you have a whistle on hand so that if uh, if you're in a location that is not uh, easily uh, visible, that uh, you can start using your whistle to so that you can notify for help. And uh, having a working cell phone also is a great benefit. You, whether it's, I mean, you talk about the conditions, but whether it's winter, which obviously sounds worse, or even summertime, is this safe, honestly, for the firefighters and for the rescue workers to have to do? Well, it's part of our training that we do, and uh, what we do is we take all precautions when it comes to the safety of our rescuers to uh, ensure when we're going down. And that's why uh, sometimes the, the, uh, the amount of time people say, well, it takes you so much time. Well, uh, we have to be absolutely sure that when we're going over that our, our rescuers are also uh, safe and uh, properly uh, uh, have the proper equipment on uh, so that they can go down there and we can get access to the people. So uh, just going back to what you were saying about people coming close. So, so one of the things that uh, they have on on, uh, on the website is that you should stay at least a one body length away from the edge. Don't go too close to the edge. And certainly now during the winter with snow, you never know where that edge is. So you have to really be cautious uh, when coming close. If there's snow there, sometimes you have uh, snow drifts or, or a, a ledge there. It appears a ledge and it's actually just a a snow overhang, so when you step on it, it will give away. So it's really important that the when you're going out there during the winter months that you have to take that into consideration with ice and snow, and your footing's not going to be the best. So uh, if you're going to be taking pictures, there's platforms. Stand on the platform. Don't go beyond the barriers. Claudio, have you ever talked to any of the people who have actually fallen down in there? Have you had a conversation or had any words with any of the people who have had to be rescued? 
Well, we ha- we've talked to to individuals that have been rescued, and certainly uh, some of them are. You know, I think what happens is uh, sometimes it's uh, we overestimate our our abilities. And uh, what we do is we get into a situation where uh, you're thinking that you're flying, uh, trying to climb, and, and then you get to a point where uh, the the uh, the train is no longer stable, so you're not able to go up or down, and so they call for our help. And certainly that how that happens, and we're able to rescue and um, and help those people out. So it, it, those are some of the things that happen, and and uh, the number one thing that we have to remember is you have to be respectful of where you are. And even when you have pets, uh, you, be aware of your pets. Be aware they, if, uh, make sure they're on leash and make sure that uh, you're, they're not running away from you and then you're chase, chasing them to try to get them. And, and, and children also. Children really need to be, uh, you need to make sure that your children are, are close at hand and uh, not get it beyond the barriers. Yeah, you know, the reason I ask that is because I... I'm very surprised, to be honest with you, that with the number of reports of this, and, and everybody in, in the city of Hamilton has now heard over the last, because there seem to be like just so many of them this year, everyone's heard about people having these falls and having to be rescued, and it, it shocks me in a sense that some people will continue to put themselves in that position. I, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be shocked, maybe I shouldn't overestimate uh, some people's intelligence or, or some people's carefulness or carelessness, I don't know what it is. But it seems to me that if I've heard, hey, people are falling into these places and need to be rescued, that would be a signal to me, hey, you know what, be a little more careful around here. Well, absolutely, and that's our challenge. Our challenge is to go out there and educate people and, 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 uh, and just provide them uh, information on, uh, on precautions that they need to take in these areas. And another one that they have is just to, when you're going out to these areas, just make sure you don't consume alcohol or take medication that mm. affect your balance. Some people go out and uh, all of a sudden your balance (laughs) is affected and you can fall. So uh, honestly, Scott, the the one thing that we're trying to do is uh, just uh, educate people. And when I say us, it's not just uh, Hamilton Fire, but the city of Hamilton and Parks and Rec. It's just uh, making people aware that when they go out there, they have to be respectful, mindful of where they are and, and all of the signage and the barriers. They're there for a reason. And we need to stay there, uh, stay behind them. Yeah, nothing better than getting all liquored up and then going to the edge of a cliff. That, that well, seems to make a lot of sense. You know, it comes. There's a lot, especially at this time of the season. Uh, we whether it's uh, drinking and driving, or even even cooking. And, and uh, one of the things that we have is people when they're uh, cooking and and uh, they they fall asleep, and, and then they have a fire inside their home. So uh, certainly, alcohol and and uh, medication can affect you. So you have to be aware and and then have control over that. Claudia, just, I, I know that the people, the, the firefighters who take the training, who do the rope rescues, go through a lot of training, so it's going to be impossible. I'm not asking you to give a, a full explanation, but take a minute or so, and exp- if you can, and just explain what goes into one of these rope rescues, because it's not just a case of, ty- I don't think, of just tying a rope around a tree and lowering a, a, a sled to get someone out. I mean, these are complicated procedures. Well, it depends. First of all, is locating the the patient is one of them. Uh, depending on where the patient is, if they're um, if they're uh, unconscious or are severely injured, then they need to be put in a basket. Uh, and the basket uh, is almost like a stretcher, and they'll be put in that, and uh, the stretcher will be lowered, and the two rescuers go down on ropes. Also, uh, when we say go down on ropes, there's uh, firefighters at the top who are uh, it's. 
they're lowered at the same time. So all the firefighters at the top are hand, by hand lowering the firefighters down until they get down to the, um, the, the patient. Then they package up the patient so that they're safe. They're placed into the basket, and then they're lifted up to the top. And again, uh, that's why uh, sometimes it can take a number of uh, hours because what happens is they may have to, uh, they call it re-rigging, depending if they, if they come to obstructions where they have to get the uh, ambulance up, then they'll have to, uh, or the, uh, the uh, stretcher, it doesn't get uh, onto limbs and things like that, and uh, they'll have to um, navigate around them. So it, it can uh, be very time-consuming. It's... Um, Again, uh, the manpower, we require manpower to lift all three patients up at the, or the, the two rescuers and the patient up at the same time. So what kind of, I mean, just quickly, what kind of numbers are you talking about? If there's two going down and two at the top at least, I mean, how, what kind of crew do you have to have to do one of these? Well, typically we'll, we'll send out uh, the number of trucks uh, depending on the location. Uh, it, it can go uh, from uh, five uh, units uh, up to uh, seven, and each unit can have about four firefighters on. Wow. Well, yeah. you know, I know you can't, and, and I'm not going to ask you this, but I know you can't talk about the idea of having people pay for the fee of all this stuff. Cause that's, I mean, you put all those people to work, that's a lot of money and that's in front of city council. I know you can't speak to that. I'm not going to ask you, but generally when you see these things, do you think that we need to have some kind of deterrent? Is there, does there need to be something that tells people, you know what, just be smarter. And if you can't be smarter by yourself, we're going to help you. And certainly what we're doing is the education portion of uh, putting the uh, the emphasis on safety and uh, providing it on the website and, and coming onto your program and just trying to get the information or the word out to people uh, just to be aware. And uh, uh, the public education that we're trying to do hopefully will... Uh, will uh, will provide us uh, some better citizens who go out there and take precautions before going out to experience nature. Claudio Mustacci, the public information officer from the Hamilton Fire Department. Claudio, thanks for doing this today. You're welcome, and um, thank you, Scott, for giving us the opportunity to speak that. And uh, hopefully uh, 2017 is going to be a very good year for us uh, for rope rescues, and we don't have to go to... The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.